1: This is a crowd podcast.
2: This is We Didn't Start the Fire, the only podcast started by me, Billy Joel. <laughs>
3: Einstein, James Dean, Brooklyn's got a winning
2: team, David Crockett, Peter Pan, yeah, Elvis Presley, Disneyland, Bardo, Budapest, the Alabama, Khrushchev.
3: Oh, I like how I belt that out, Khrushchev.
2: Hello and welcome to episode 52 of We Didn't Start the Fire, the podcast that's a number one song that's a skip and a trip around the story of the post-war world. Our guru, Billy Joel. Our mission, to feed our heads. Our pledge, together we will learn without even feeling like we're learning. I'm Tom Fordyce. This is The Unstoppable. Katie Puckrick. Before we start, Katie, yeah. we've been having some uh, magnificent correspondence from our fire listeners. Yeah. Thank you very much if you have written in and you've made suggestions for upcoming episodes as we desired. We do get them all and they are very, very useful. So, yeah. Keep them coming. And Katie, you have a particularly charming oh, example of correspondence. Oh, this is so
3: great, yeah. I am emailing, as I thought you'd be interested in how I got my Christmas presents this year. Each year, my wife wraps and puts my gifts in an order based on a theme, and she's been doing it for many years now and has become a big part of our celebrations. Wow, what a good wife. Previous themes have included managers of my favorite football team and places we've been on holiday together. I then have to work out the order of the gifts before I can open them. This year, my wife ordered my presents using the lyrics of We Didn't Start the Fire. Photos attached. I was very impressed, and I thought you might be too thanks again for your great show, James, Tom, have a look at these photographs. I am very impressed. <laughs> it looks like there's about five gifts here and they each have stickies on them. One sticky says Rockefeller Campanella Communist black. And then, and then you've a... got a
2: Harry Truman, Doris Day, oh, yeah. Red China, Johnny Ray.
3: So I don't even know what those, what's in those gifts. What do you well,
2: think? Well, the uh, close inspection reveals that the wrapping paper is Manchester United
3: uh-huh. themed
2: wrapping paper, which um, gives us a clue to his favorite football team. Uh-huh. Who knows? I don't know whether the gift itself.
3: Oh, the gift itself might not necessarily be anything to do with the podcast, but no. it's just the order. And you know what? There are what, 120 yes, topics are. in the song? So she's made a cross for her own back. I don't know how many presents James. <laughs> (laughs) will have received over Christmas. could be a full Christmas job, this one, couldn't it? Yeah, a big Christmas job.
2: Katie, should we toast our lobes around the fire?
3: (laughs) I don't know how Khrushchev is going to be topping this. This is our uh, Soviet dictator of the week. I don't know if he's really a dictator. We're going to find out. Any uh, ignorant preconceptions that you might hold (laughs) based on some wham songs that you heard in the (laughs) 80s about this... uh, the soviet Premier.
2: well i have already sung uh, nikita by alston john in the previous episode to flag this one up oh the thing i've noticed about khrushchev is that he always seems to be played in fiction by short fat bald men um so he's been played by bob hoskins yeah he's been played by brian glover uh also known as the peer teacher from kez all right. might be too british a film for you that, i know you're
3: waiting there's just blankness emanating from my eyeballs <laughs> <laughs> to your expectant expression
2: <laughs> basically my preconception is that Christoph uh is clearly a short fat bald man
3: well he is very small turns out he's five foot two and he does bear a passing resemblance to a jacket potato <laughs> um, before he's been microwaved and lubricated with various condiments but we can stretch this out to comparisons to snacks all all the live long day. I think it's probably not a good idea because we are sorely testing the patience of our listeners and also of our esteemed guest. She is a senior lecturer at the University of Winchester. She specializes in Belarus in the post-Stalin era. She was our Melenkov guest and uh, she will be coming back on for Sputnik. She holds a British Academy Mid-Career Fellowship 2020 to 2022. She is Dr. Natalia Cherneshova. Welcome. Oh
1: wow, what a welcome. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you, Tom. It's wonderful to be back oh. and it's a, a real privilege to talk about Khrushchev. I think I might help a little bit with your preconception of his appearance in the course of the show.
3: Oh, okay. All right. Well, just tell us right now, where can you set us straight? Sure. All of the footage that we have of him
1: shows us the, exactly that kind of man, short, fat, bold, dresses like a jacket potato as well, <laughs> um, but really forceful and can hold his own in any circumstance, in any audience, in front of any kind of group of people. But perhaps some of that appearance had served him well at times uh, in politics. However, if we look at Khrushchev's pictures, when he photographs of him when he was a young man, uh? he was quite dashing. He was slim. Oh. Uh, he, you know, he wasn't any taller, but he was quite good-looking, um, and there was a bit of a dapper about him in his very uh, youthful days. Um, not as a child; as a child, he walked about without shoes because he came from a very poor family.
3: Well, we're just looking at pictures now on the World Wide Web of young Khrushchev, and he's—he's uh, he's got kind of a little pout going on, like full <laughs> full lips, flared nostrils. good cheekbones as well, isn't he? Good cheekbones.
1: Somewhere around mid-twenties, um, 1920s, that he got very ill for uh, a few months and had something like a, a bad case of grip or something like that. And and that made him lose his good looks. He never quite recovered from that and gradually sort of went down, down the hill.
3: Before we get too much further, let's place him within the context of history. So Khrushchev was the guy who Came along after Stalin and after Malenkov. What was the big idea behind him? What was his his whole thing? What was his gig?
1: Khrushchev's main accomplishment has been, and has been seen, the denunciation of Stalin and dethroning of Stalin as, as a demigod, the, the the status that he had held in the Soviet Union before he died in 1953 for several decades. So
3: that was a very provocative thing for him just to come in and denounce yeah. the guy who had preceded him, because if he said those sort of things in the wrong place amongst the wrong company, it would be curtains For Nikki, Nikki the K.
1: Absolutely. Well, not only Stalin wasn't just the guy who preceded him, Stalin was in many ways the guy who made Khrushchev, um, brought him to the heights where he was Mm. in 1953.
3: The hand that fed him.
1: Mm. And Khrushchev greatly admired Stalin, even after Stalin's death, even after his secret speech. He Mm. would still, on occasion, pronounce how great and impressive. Stalin was.
3: Mm, Well, we're going to get into that secret speech Mm. a little bit later on.
2: He seems, Natalia, when you look at his background, it's almost like he has come from central casting for a potential Communist Party leader because he was a herdsboy, He was then a metal fitters apprentice and he also worked in a mine. He's taken a lot of boxes there, Katie, isn't he?
3: Yeah, the proletariat box, the peasant box, the working man's box.
2: His hands are dirty with honest toil.
1: That's very true, and Khrushchev was very proud of his working-class credentials. He was less proud of his uh, peasant roots, and let's not forget the first 14 years of his life, he was a peasant, Uh, he was a peasant boy, and you you mentioned herding sheep, and lots of of other jobs that uh, a very poor Russian peasant boy does, Khrushchev did, so he really lived through the worst of the um, imperial Russian poverty. And he moved to Yuzovka, this mining town that his father had been going to as a seasonal worker when he was 14. So you know, a big chunk of his life was in in the village, but he didn't like to Stress that too much, or remember that too much. And in his memoirs, he gives it very little space to those years. But the working class origins he did like to emphasize because that fit with the whole ethos of the Communist Party, the Party of the Workers. And this is also where Khrushchev begins to become politically active.
3: Yeah, I'm wondering how he managed to finagle his way into the Communist Party elite. I mean, I know there was World War One, lots of things went down, but how does the little goat herder? managed to herd himself amongst the the high and mighty well um very quickly that that's the amazing
1: thing about khrushchev's rise um through the party ranks if you like in in the late 20s and early 1930s this was the time for promotion for for all kinds of people of humble backgrounds, not least helped by the great terror that vacated a lot of nice top jobs.
3: And that was Stalin's purge, right? Where he just decided exactly. if you looked at him sideways or cross-eyed, you were out.
1: Quite. And so, you know, for a lot of people, this is a time of promotion. But even within that context, Khrushchev's rise is quite spectacular. And he begins by becoming uh, politically active in the mind be- during the, the, the war. He joins the Bolshevik Party, in 1918, which is quite late because it's sometime after the revolution and sometime after the Bolshevik takeover. And he was always a little bit embarrassed about that. Oh. And he was always a little bit taunted about this by the other big shots in, in on Stalin's team.
3: And was he just being careful? He was just waiting to see which way the wind was blowing before he committed? It was that he was perhaps not that politically
1: aware of, oh, okay. of, of the, the nuances as he himself claimed mm. uh, between different parties. But also it might be that his sort of natural sympathies were more with Mensheviks, um, the, the competitors of the Bolsheviks, but then he switched sides. And that is <laughs> that is awkward. Although he followed in good footsteps there. Trotsky did the same. <laughs> but Trotsky was quicker, off, off the mark. Right. Khrushchev was a bit slower.
3: I remember you told us, Natalia, some great stories when you came on for our Malenkov episode about how Stalin used to enjoy humiliating his uh, party cohort by inviting them over for a movie night at Shea Stalin, plying them with drinks, and then insisting that they dance for him in ridiculous ways. So (laughs) I imagine that Khrushchev was not spared those humiliations.
1: Oh, no. He was one of the more frequent butts of the joke. He was the one who was made to dance a Ukrainian national dance, Gopak, a kind of folk dance that involves you, squatting down and, and throwing your legs out. Yeah, and the kicking. Jump, you squat kicking. down,
3: kick on either side. Kick. Yeah, the Cossack and kick. By that point, he was not
1: as slim as I made him <laughs> sound in the, in the early <laughs> days uh, of his life. So it was quite hard and he did not enjoy that one bit.
3: He must have had some kind of grit, gumption, the right stuff that made him persevered because he's not physically prepossessing. People enjoy making him the butt of jokes, especially Stalin. So what was it about him that made him or allowed him to persevere? Well, part of his
1: success, I suppose, part of his secret was was his appearance. You know, the very appearance that we often joke about and, and talk about him looking as a country bumpkin and a clown and, and someone not to be taken seriously, non-threatening. Well, that played in his favor. He wanted to be seen as non-threatening. Uh, there was something disarming about him and he was quite you know, he wanted also to seem nice and compared to a lot of his colleagues up at the top, he was nice. So he presented this front of of someone who was a little bit naive, uh, not cunning at all, uh, not threatening, not complicated, and could be trusted, therefore, because he was non-threatening. And and that's how... I mean, we can, of course, uh, only speculate what Stalin thought, but it it seems that a lot of times this was in his favor.
3: Let's get into... The power struggle. I know we discussed this at great length on the Malenkov episode when you brought it so vividly to life. But once Malenkov was installed as the leader after Stalin died, the idea was Khrushchev was right behind him, kind of pulling the strings. What was that dynamic and how did Khrushchev manoeuvre his way into a uh, pole position?
1: Right. This is really interesting how things change so dramatically behind the closed doors and, uh, um, and Khrushchev manages to pull a gambit after gambit. The first gambit of his life was getting rid of Beria. The most feared man after Stalin's death, uh, Malenkov was in cahoots with Beria. So Malenkov was Beria's um, sort of closest uh, ally, mm. and and Khrushchev was aware of that. But by the time that Khrushchev was prepared to to, to pull one on on Beria and everyone had everyone else uh, on board, even Malenkov was getting a bit fed up of Beria's very abrupt ways. Beria was clearly seeing himself as the first among equals, and and was. Was saying so and was really stepping on the toes of the party prerogatives and, and appointing people here and there, making taking initiatives with reforms without consulting others and so on. So even Molinkov got fed up. Khrushchev managed to get everyone united against Beria and managed to also lull Beria, he thought, into a state of unsuspicion, uh, if that's a word, and successfully managed to get rid of him. And then next it was the turn of Malinkov himself and of Molotov and other. Long-standing Stalin's ally, and and Khrushchev did this gradually by taking various policy initiatives that put him a little bit ahead of the others, but also by playing on Stalin's legacy, and accusing people, hinting at their involvement in the terror during the Stalin's time, and therefore kind of pushing them aside. So but also, making...
3: sort of conveniently editing out his own involvement in Stalin's terror so just diminishing that a little bit turning everybody's attention look over there <laughs> to everybody else let's get into the Absolutely. thing that you mentioned a bit earlier the famous secret speech that obviously tom wasn't that secret No that
2: secret speech no because
3: we're talking about it now So Mm. what was this? Uh, Not only we are talking about it now, uh,
1: pretty much everyone was talking about it then. So if if there ever was a misnomer, that's that's one. Um, Khrushchev's son later said that he didn't think Khrushchev meant for it to be secret. And in fact, it wasn't called secret speech at the time he was giving his report. The report was called On the Cult of Personality and Its Consequences, something like that. It's quite a good title there, isn't it? Yeah.
3: Mm. And how long was this speech, by the way?
1: It was four hours. (sighs) Mm -hmm. without a break. Khrushchev could talk. Catheters for everybody. (laughs) (laughs) The secret speech was the first time when such a a lengthy, detailed and angry attack was launched on Stalin and his reputation. Now, Khrushchev did not start de-Stalinization. That's often associated with the secret speech, but actually de-Stalinization had begun almost immediately after Stalin's death. And there were various signs, public signs, that this was happening. But the first initiator of policies that could be described as destabilization was Beria. Something that, I, you know, once I mentioned this to a friend who uh, came from Russia but a very long time ago and and she refused to believe me because Beria has such a, you know, justly deserved reputation of a monster that to conceive of him, you know, releasing prisoners from the Gulag, releasing the doctors that were about to be shot or sent off to Gulag, um, uh, although they were innocent, and and, uh, taking all kinds of liberal reforms initiatives is just inconceivable, but it, it did happen. So Khrushchev was a little bit on the back foot with that. But with launching the secret speech, volunteering to give the report at the Congress, Khrushchev made sure that he was the one who set the terms of the debate.
3: Right, so he was basically detailing, outlining all of these various horrifying actions that Stalin had taken and saying, while you guys were just carrying on living your lovely Russian lives, this was what was going on behind the scenes?
1: Pretty much. He didn't do the research. The research was done by a commission that was Mm -hmm. organized at the Politburo's. Bequest, But he incorporated, or his aides incorporated all that material into the report. And the report had been circulated to the other members of the team of the Politburo beforehand. But uh, Khrushchev kept making additions to it up to the very last moment. And during the speech, he deviated from the script quite a lot. So it was really, in many ways, his speech. And yes, he lashed out at Stalin for committing various crimes during his Term in power, um, the, atrocities, uh, the atrocities, the executions, exactly the the arrests, the torture, the destruction of lives of countless communists. Yes. Now, mind you, Khrushchev focused on communists and mainly on the communist party, not all the victims of the Stalinist terror. He also completely demolished Stalin's reputation as a military leader. You know, Stalin had been credited with winning the Second World War. And he was just going, he wasn't all that. And he was saying that rubbish. He was a coward. He couldn't speak for a few days after the war started. He often overwrote his generals. It was thanks to the party and the people that we won the war. And and this was the only point at which his audience applauded him. There was some reaction. In four
2: hours. Because that's why I was wondering, was it a gamble for him at all? Is he doing this because he sees that's his political future, that he's going to put space and distance between the past and where he wants to go?
1: Some of it was genuine shock when the poster chef, uh, commission that was investigating these crimes against commun- loyal communists made their report. The, the Politburo members were quite shocked. Of course, they all took part in the bloodbath to various extents, but it was one thing to sort of do it then and sign off those lists and it's another thing to have all the the, the full extent of the terror catalogue to them. So part of it was the genuine feeling that something had to be said. It was the first party congress since Stalin's death and not to say anything would have been wrong but also difficult because some of the Stalin Stalin's victims were coming back and insisting on Something being said, but also for Khrushchev, absolutely, this was a political game. This this was a way of distancing himself from those crimes and saying, "Look, I at least was the one who had the guts to say the truth, while you were all silent." And indeed, some parts of the speech have him sort of taunt the police, <laughs> the Politburo members sitting right next to him, saying, "Well, you you didn't say anything, and you would have gone on enough lying." So he really kind of made himself the top guy with yeah. this speech but it was a huge risk
3: kind of virtue signaling so what was his whole gambit once he got into power was he trying to distinguish himself from Stalin clearly he was there were loosening of restrictions or was broadening of freedoms was he just sort of announcing like there's a new sheriff in town and it's it's a free for all or was it sort of careful loosenings of restrictions he
1: wasn't quite yet at the top after the secret speech. Uh, There was still a coup against him that he would have to survive in 1957 when the rest of the team got so fed up with him and his increasingly impatient, rude ways that they rebelled and tried to get rid of him. But they were not very well organised and they didn't really think things through. They were not sure what they wanted Khrushchev to do. Did they want him to go? Did they want him to become a bit less prominent? And and Khrushchev, with his back to the wall, played another great gambit of his life. He demanded that the entire Central Committee, which is the, the top elites of the Communist Party, from various regions and republics, be assembled to decide his fate. And because before then, he had cleverly staffed Central Committee with his supporters, you know, being head of the party, he replaced those who were not his people with his people in various positions. The Central Committee backed him and it was the Politburo all of a sudden that were on the back foot defending themselves and they were labelled by uh, Khrushchev as the anti-party group. Although they were not anti-party, they were just anti-Khrushchev. And they were the ones who lost. From that point onwards, from 1957 on, he is the top dog. He can plough on undeterred, almost undeterred, uh, with what he wants to achieve. But the things that he wanted to achieve often had to do with making life better for ordinary Soviet people.
2: So how does life change for the ordinary? Let's say you're living in Moscow and... Khrushchev is empowered What do you notice in your everyday life that changes?
1: Well, one thing you notice is that shops are getting a little bit more food products in them. Prices sometimes go down a little bit. You notice also that you're getting a little bit more money. So the, the salaries are be- beginning to be raised. One of the first... Economic policies that uh, Khrushchev initiated concerns the improvement of the living standards for peasants, for for the collective farm workers. They, They were getting more money for their work. They were taxed less, so they had to pay less to the state or provide less of their produce to the state. Prices for foodstuffs at the same time in cities were also kept low or lower. Now these things slip a little bit later to in in the Khrushchev decade towards the so mid '60s, and it causes protests, notably in Novocherkassk, where blood was spilled mm. when the uh, Soviet authorities suppressed those protests. But the very existence of those protests over economic conditions, over rising prices, suggests that things have improved, and people's expectations were that they would continue to improve.
3: Yeah.
2: Right. Let's just take a little breather there and have some ads, and we'll be back in a moment. Imagine boarding a flight thinking you're heading on holiday, but
1: instead you get taken hostage by Saddam Hussein. Your daily reality is the
0: fact that at any moment when the guard comes along, he might just pull out his gun and shoot you in the back of the head.
3: All the tanks are in rows and they're all pointing their guns at
0: us. Why has it been covered up for 30 years? That man has been shot. My God. Search for the secret history of Flight 149 and subscribe
1: now.
2: Katie I feel like we're beginning to get to know Khrushchev much better and it's almost a shame Natalia that you weren't there to help out some of the leaders of the West who seem to have been either baffled by Nikita and unable to understand who he really was or just a bit dismissive there's a quote from Harold Macmillan Prime Minister of Great Britain, who is um, quite unpleasant, Casey, quite oh. catty. Okay. He says he describes Khrushchev as a fat, vulgar man with pig eyes and ceaseless flow of talk. Ow! Mm.
3: Has he looked in the mirror,
1: this Harold <laughs> Macmillan?
2: <laughs> so, how did the West feel about him? Were they confused?
1: I think, yes, it was a mixture of fascination, fear, and sometimes disgust. Khrushchev. Is very explosive, and sometimes he just goes off the script, goes off on a tangent, embarrasses himself and his host, and and sometimes he regrets it afterwards. There were occasions when this was an act aimed at intimidating his audience. Sometimes it was genuine. He lost the plot. I think the the, the reactions varied, and and you know some some people were more sympathetic to him, some less. It took a while to get to know him, get to love him. He was a complex man. yeah. So his relationship with Eisenhower is interesting. His uh, relationship with Kennedy is even more interesting.
3: Yes. He was known for his threatening comment directed to the West, which kind of boiled down to, we will bury you. Can you talk about that speech? Because um, I have a feeling... 2020 20 hindsight. it was a little bit of a lost in translation moment. like it was uh, an idiomatic Russian expression kind of like, well, it's your funeral kind of thing, but then th- they built it up in the West as like, oh no, they're coming to get us. the the Russians want to annihilate us. What was that all about? The person I
1: always feel sorry for is Khrushchev's translator or interpreter <laughs> um because Khrushchev's speech is peppered with these idiomatic expressions that are a nightmare to translate into any language. The speech that you you referred to was indeed the case of being lost in translation or or being a metaphor rather that was taken too literally. Right. Um, And Khrushchev himself, I think, got very fed up with explaining what he meant during his American trip. Yeah, this is what I was trying to
2: say. Bury you, bury you, I meant bury you.
1: He meant that the the, the Soviet Union, I nearly said we didn't know, that the (laughs) Soviet Union will outstrip America in production of consumer goods and, and economic achievements and everything that basically communism will triumph mm. over capitalism but of course it is such a juicy a metaphor that everyone said no 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 but also because it's the cold war you know it, yeah. it's quite understandable people are worried about what uh, the head of, of a superpower is saying and especially when what he's saying is so aggressive
3: and especially since they can utilize it for the anti-red propaganda machine in in the US uh, in particular you know the Soviets are gunning for us uh, hide under your beds duck and cover
2: Katie uh, Billy is so keen on this period of Russian history that he has granted us separate episodes on some of the major things that happen under Khrushchev yeah so the Cuban <clears throat> Missile crisis the U2 spy plane crisis so we're gonna to touch and, on and Budapest. and Budapest which we've already touched on
3: yes a lot of touching
2: a lot of touching <laughs> But you, in your peerless research for today's episode, Casey, you unearthed a <laughs> excellent documentary when Khrushchev goes to America.
3: It's called Khrushchev Does America.
2: Which is a lovely little nod to a diff- very different sort of film. Um,
3: <laughs> this is a, just to give you guys, listeners, a little more information. It's a documentary from 2013 for Arte France, and it's written and directed by Tim B. Doids. He's actually originally from Russia. It's a very entertaining uh, hop, skip, and a jump through Nikki the K's uh, <laughs> frolic through America in what, like 1957 or something.
2: Yeah, and there's so many bits that jump out, aren't there? You highlighted the reaction of Marilyn Monroe when she she attends a speech. Is it in to the Hollywoods? writers guild or something no like it's that.
3: it's just that she attends there's a, a lunch thrown for khrushchev at the cafe de Paris in hollywood and all of the brightest stars of classic hollywood are there and all the studio heads are there and the camera pans the room and you see marilyn monroe and you see tony curtis and you you know it's just fantastic and they're riveted by this potato in a suit literally a jacket potato <laughs> at the podium who's getting Carried away. Why is he getting quite exercised, Tom? Marilyn. No, he gets carried away because he was banned from visiting Disneyland. It's
2: an amazing strop, isn't it?
3: He throws a bona fide temper tantrum. And it
2: goes on and on and on. He doesn't just go... Why couldn't I go to Disneyland? And it
3: was a security concern. Like, basically, they felt like they couldn't protect him. And Natalia, you had a. I don't know if you had a look at this speech, but it's very, very amusing. And it's sort of hard to know whether he's doing his strategic, angry Russian bear act, or, as I suspect, (laughs) he was really, really put out by the fact that he could not visit Disneyland and he starts to cast all these aspersions on the American way of life and is there so much crime in Disneyland is that why they're afraid to allow a world leader and Tom yes you're about to get to the point of uh, Marilyn's somewhat uh, dumbfounded slash careful reaction when she's asked her response she looks
2: terrified almost as if she is back in Moscow during the purges she (laughs) fixes a grin to her face doesn't she and the reporter just says what do you think of that then Yeah, and she sort of thinks hang on he's trying to trip me up and just repeats the phrase it was very interesting.
3: It was very interesting, yes. And then, what, is this what you expected? And her response to that is, I expected it to be interesting.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Khrushchev could take a few lessons from Marilyn Monroe on how yeah. to be enigmatic and not say much. The story of Disney is interesting, but it reveals a sense of Khrushchev's insecurity oh, yes. about going to America. He doesn't like to be denied something and said doesn't like to hear the answer no.
3: And also he sees it as maybe a snub or a slight. Yes,
1: yes, quite. Um, He wanted to go, he had plans to go, and someone says no because we can't provide security, he doesn't buy it. He was very concerned before going, before making the trip, about how the Americans would treat him, whether they would afford him enough respect that um, a head of an important state deserves to be afforded. Yes. And he was very keen to extract that respect from them no matter what and complain if he didn't get it. And I think perhaps Disney tantrum fits into that a little bit.
3: Yeah. Um, He's the ultimate squeaky wheel. The thing that really tickled me was he was so concerned that he'd be diplomatically dissed by by Eisenhower, and he was just constantly hyper-vigilant about, you know, is the pomp and circumstance reaching the correct level? And there's big trolling of Eisenhower on day one when Khrushchev presents him with a model of that metal ball that Sputnik had shot and landed on the moon just the day before. Ah. So it just seems like everything between the USSR and the U.S. was a schlock measuring competition <laughs>
1: yes uh, Eisenhower was just incredulous at how crude that was and uh, he couldn't believe that we should have done it
3: because it was done on, on live television, on it's live like, television. here anyway, have this ball this yeah. is our extra ball that we landed on the moon and you can have our our model <laughs> suck <Yeah>. it <laughs> suck it Ike <laughs>
1: Yes, it was a point for Khrushchev. Eisenhower did admit the possibility that this was a genuine gift, but I think he was. You could see on the film that you recommend that you could see Eisenhower on the on the color footage. And he's turning red. He's so angry. You know, his cheeks are flushing, and Khrushchev is just going. <laughs>
3: I did love that detail on his uh, trip to Hollywood that he was taken to the set of Can-Can, which was... Uh, <laughs> That's <the> an amazing <laughs> bit
2: in the film, isn't <laughs> it?
3: musical starring Shirley MacLaine. And, you know, it's great. It's just a bunch of dancing girls doing the Can-Can. And they had a voiceover of Khrushchev's dictated memoirs. Apparently he had dictated them before his death. His comments are, well, the girls exposed their behinds. It was very spicy. A film for adults only. Yes. Khrushchev
1: was... On that occasion, quite well behaved, I think, and he didn't sure. lash out and he didn't say, Oh, this
2: is terrible. Well,
3: who doesn't love a girl's behind, <laughs> surrounded by frilly knickers? He's
2: in a slightly awkward position that Katie's His needs. wife is next to him. Yeah. Yeah, his wife is <laughs> next to him, and he's on a balcony, so everyone can see his expression. He's well, clearly not expecting to see a lot of flashing <laughs> bottoms and pants, so he fixes a sort of grin on his face. No, which he, he
3: looked, it's not a fixed grin. <laughs> I think, I think he, it's unmediated delight.
2: I like the fact as well, Katie, that he gets a tour of the IBM factory. And his takeaway from the IBM factory is not that this new computing machine is going to change the world and that maybe he needs to start developing a computer facility in Russia. His takeaway is that the self-service cafeteria is mind-blowing. And he wants to introduce <laughs> self-service cafeterias in Russia.
3: That's kind of my angle as well. Like, what's the, what are the snacks like? <laughs> That's absolutely a brilliant example
1: of what... Khrushchev's priorities were, you know, he took one look at the IBM machines and said, we've got loads of those. Not true. But the cafeteria with its shining tables is is, is stunning. And that's for Khrushchev, the importance of communism is to get people a good life, where they can have the things they need, where they can have free time to enjoy the things they want, as well as, you know, doing their productive labor for for society and for the good of the mankind.
2: But to him, those things were important. So he has eight years in power from 1956 to 1964. And the end when it comes, Natalia, if you have been Khrushchev and you're looking back at the deeds that you've taken part in and just the recent history of Russia, you're probably thinking that when the end comes, it will be the actual end. But it's a bloodless coup that removes him.
1: Yes, and, and Khrushchev thought that was one of his main achievements of his time in office, that he was retired. And his colleagues were able to say to him, we don't like you, and get away with it. And that was one of the defences that he puts up. He put, put up very little defence at the time when they ambushed him, if you like. But one thing he said was, you call this personality cult. Uh, you, you wouldn't be able to do to even conceive of this under Stalin. but Because of me, you now can. He had been talking about retiring for some time before this happened, but he never could quite bring himself to it. And so his colleagues did it for him.
3: The one thing that everybody knows about Khrushchev is the shoe banging incident at the UN. What can you tell us about that? May
1: not have happened. It may not be true. There are varying accounts of this. He did speak. His speech was passionate and and quite threatening at times. That's all true. He was Um, having a
3: go at another delegate. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah. There are different versions of this. So some say, uh, and and some, you know, these versions come from people who were there or claim to even have been involved picking up the shoe. One of his shoes came off, and he may have picked it up and placed it on the podium next to him oh, while he was shaking his fist. Still,
3: that's like having a freak out if your shoe falls off when you're yeah. having a well, ha- having a meltdown. There are
1: rumors that a journalist stepped on his foot and oh, okay. that came to, brought the shoe down, but uh, <laughs> didn't stop Khrushchev from making the speech. And then he was very, you know, energetic. The about show it. must go on. The show must go on. But the shoe must come off. <laughs> <laughs> But there isn't a footage of him actually brandishing the shoe.
3: So maybe it's apocryphal, but basically the maybe. idea is, is that he loses yeah. his shit no matter what. Yeah. And it yeah. might involve um, shoes the, coming off. And there are
1: some, you know, Soviet officials who remember this happening and who say, remember being very embarrassed by it, by being part of the same delegation <laughs> with Khrushchev.
3: So he. he oversees a lot of big crises that happen. There's the, the downing of the U-2 plane behind Soviet lines, Berlin crisis, there's the Cuban Missile Crisis. We're, we'll be getting into that in the, the JFK years. But these are quite hefty things that he is overseeing. And how is he perceived uh, within the Kremlin and within the Soviet Union to have handled this? Was he seen as powerful, authoritative, successful? Not always. I mean a lot
1: of these challenges and they were huge challenges for any politician to handle. Some of them were well, all of them were of his own making. Of course he didn't authorize the U two plane to fly over the Soviet Union. But he
3: shoots off his mouth a lot, right? He and does. then so then it's he gets a response where the Americans or the West call his bluff.
1: And sometimes he tries to outsmart them and, and play a game and loses in his own game. So uh, with the U-2 plane, the fact that he didn't reveal the the fact that the pilot survived and they had him, the Soviets had him, that, that was intentional and Khrushchev hoped to kind of corner Eisenhower and get him, you know, to be all soft for the summit, but ended up derailing the summit completely and making Eisenhower furious. With the Berlin ultimatum. This is one ultimatum in in history where the deadline doesn't mean a deadline. And he keeps shifting it back. And and in the end, the outcome is a wall, not the outcome that Khrushchev wanted. It's a rather embarrassing outcome. He wanted to
3: unify East Berlin and and West Berlin. He basically
1: wanted to have control over the entire... Over the whole city. Yeah. Yeah. And this doesn't work, and, and, and the wall is it's ugly, but it's also embarrassing for the Soviets, because as Khrushchev later said in his life after his retirement, what kind of a paradise is it that people want to run away from? Mm-hmm. And with Cuba, you know, it, it is his gambit, his gambling that gets them there. It's very tense. And no, his colleagues do not quite see this as a victory because the agreement to remove the missiles, American missiles from Turkey remains a secret And so he cannot actually say that he got something in return.
2: So he dies in 1971 of a heart attack at the age of 77. And when we look at his legacy, Natalia, in the immediate years after his death, and indeed the immediate days, it's almost like he's forgotten. There's no state funeral. He gets one sentence in Pravda, the state newspaper.
3: Oh, that's so cold.
2: Which is super cold. But now with the benefit of more intervening years. How do you think he changed Russia? Is there a, for example, is there a Mikhail Gorbachev without Khrushchev? Uh,
1: probably not. The impact of his reforms, however abortive, however misconceived they were, was huge because the entire generation of Russians and, and uh, Soviet people, and not least the entire generation of Soviet politicians, grew up uh, as young people, you know, came of age, if you like, in this spirit of Khrushchev's thought, Khrushchev's destalinization, this messy, but in many ways, exciting and liberating period in Soviet history. And Gorbachev quite clearly saw himself as, as a successor to Khrushchev and, and someone who had learned from Khrushchev's mistakes, but was set out to finish what Khrushchev had started. Of course, in the process, he ended up D- demolishing the Soviet Union completely. That was not his intention. But he did see himself as, as, a, as, as a pupil.
3: How do Russians view Khrushchev now? It's difficult to say.
1: He's not very much spoken about. There's probably the same mixed reputation of him as is represented by, by his tombstone that was put up by the artist he had insulted, but developed a kind of a grudging respect for Ernst And And that monument is made of black and white granite uh, or marble, I think, with just Khrushchev's smiling head in the middle. And the idea is that Khrushchev was both good and bad. He did very noble things, very good things, such as, you know, helping facilitating the release of so many gulag prisoners and rehabilitating those who did not survive, and lots of bad things. And this complexity, this uh, duality, this contrast is probably how the Russians remember him now. There were some surveys uh, of public opinion about him in the late 90s, and, and they were split in half. Stalin in, in Russia today has, has taken center stage. And the memory of Stalin and the sort of justification of uh, Stalinism is, is often promoted by the state, by the authorities, by Putin. And so, of course, that doesn't sit very well with memory of Khrushchev, who was famous for dethroning Stalin and, and criticizing him. So um, it's, it's a complex memory of a complex man.
2: Well, Natalia, thank you so much for showing us the light and the shade in this man. Katie, I feel like my head has been filled in the best possible way.
3: I'm going to start developing a spicy public manner where I have explosive outrages (laughs) about ridiculous things like the fact that my tea has gotten cold. I think that's an absolute snub for a presenter of a podcast of this stature. Tom, what
2: are you going to do about it? I think it's really interesting. (laughs)
1: But you will have to give people lots of hugs. And that may be difficult in the current
0: circumstances.
3: I'm happy to give a hug. Give a hug, get a hug. (laughs) Thank you. I hug you. I hug you, you,
2: Natalia. (laughs) (laughs) Katie, I don't know if you noticed, you probably did, but I'm still struggling to get the correct pronunciation of Khrushchev. There's, the a,
3: there's a yeah, there's a at the beginning. There's a or there's a and then, yeah, just Nikki, Nikki boy, <laughs> that'll do it. So Billy knows what he's doing. I don't even know why we even open our faces and waste our breath on this. <laughs> of course, he's got to include Khrushchev. I know he's an adorable Mr. Potato Head. <laughs> However, he did oversee so many prominent events in the mid 20th century. So we got to we got to keep him in there. And also, he was great at throwing a tantrum.
2: What a tantrum thrower.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Shoe or not shoe? To shoe or not to shoe. That <laughs> is the question. <laughs> I like the idea of just screaming so much that you lose your shoes.
2: <laughs> <laughs> so next week, Katie, yeah. we have somewhat of a gear change. We go from Mr. Ah. Potato Head miss glamorous
3: oh she is such a glamorous grace kelly aka princess grace we find out how the queen of hollywood becomes the princess of monte carlo
2: mm. in the meantime katie if people would like another podcast to listen to let us tell them about death Of a film star now these are the stories of the stars we lost too soon from judy garland to carrie fisher chadwick boseman to robin williams it's incredible storytelling super immersive and really wonderfully produced go and check it out just search for death of a film star in your podcast app
3: and everybody who has ears clapped to your speakers right now or perhaps even your headphones Why don't you follow us at Spread That Fire on all the socials, and please subscribe while you're at it. We'd very much appreciate it.
2: Now, Casey, we've talked about merch before. Um, There has been a magnificent Ah. suggestion that we need to bring out a Studebaker (laughs) oven mitt.
3: (laughs) Studebaker, get it? Baker? Studebaker? Studebaker!
2: do the bigger yeah but there is so much else as discussed before which element are you most excited about
3: well you know I love a tea towel I love a tea towel there's you know and also a tea towel that says damp cloth utopia I think that is a marriage made in form and function heaven leave it with us working on it